You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 131. If you're using the Church Bible, it is on page 625. 625. If you're using an electronic Bible, then it's two taps and you get to Psalm 131. Those of you who who may be visitors this evening, we are engaged these Sunday evenings in studying through what's called the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. 120, 134 makes 15 Psalms, as you count inclusively, and uh, we've been looking at them on the assumption that they are connected to those festivals about which we were reading in Exodus chapter 19, that on those occasions when the people of God came to appear before God, as Exodus 19 says, it was these particular psalms that eventually they would sing together. And uh, we've noticed many neat things about these psalms. One of them is that they seem to go in groups of three, and I've said from one point of view they seem to be like a spiral staircase. There does seem to be a kind of spiritual progress in them. From another point of view, they're more like a corkscrew going down ever more deeply in the spiritual experience of the people of God as they enjoy the means of blessing that God has ordained for them. And this particular one, Psalm 131, is uh, particularly referred to as a David psalm, a song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. If you've been following along in this series, uh, we're at the end of the fourth cycle of three. We have another three Psalms to go. And I guess if uh, the other 14 Psalms were spread out before you, and uh, I, I gave you Psalm 131 and said, you can put this psalm anywhere. Just think and choose where you think the best place for this psalm to be located might be. I rather guess that the, the majority of us would put it, surprise, surprise, where the Scriptures put it. Immediately, after Psalm 130. In many ways, it is the calm after the storm. And two very different pictures 
of spiritual experience. Psalm 130, the psalmist feels as though he is drowning in his sense of need. He's crying to God out of the depths. Uh, He feels as though his sins are overwhelming him, and he's seeking pardon and mercy. And then the picture that's painted in Psalm 131 is the picture uh, you would notice very beautifully twice in verse 2, a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Uh, It's almost as though written over Psalm 131 are the words, peace, be still. And the psalmist is is very clever in his use of language. Uh, You'll notice, uh, for example, that the psalmist speaks about the way in which his whole being, his soul, verse 2, has been stilled and quieted. It's often said that in, in the Western church, Christians have often operated with a, a Greek view of the soul rather than a biblical view of the soul. One of the ways in which that comes out is I've often heard people say the difference between an animal and a human being is that an animal has a soul. And yet when the Old Testament uses the language of soul, it uses it of the animals. The very language that's used in Genesis 1 of the creation of the animal kingdom, they became living beings or living creatures is exactly the expression that's used in Genesis 2-7 when God breathes into man as the dust of the earth, and man becomes a living being, a living creature. So, when the Scriptures speak about the soul, and actually the Psalms quite often address the soul, why are you cast down, O my soul? Bless the Lord, O my soul. They aren't so much thinking about some rather ethereal part of my being. They are thinking about my whole being from one particular point of view. And the word that's used in the Old Testament, often translated soul, is a word that has a wide variety of meanings. And not infrequently, it, it, it carries the sense uh, almost of, of gasping for breath of, uh, of the appetite and the longings. We might say that when the Scripture uses the term soul from time to time, it, it's thinking of me from a particular point of view, and that is my, my need, my, my, my need to, to breathe, my need for life, my sense that I am I'm actually dependent on that which is outside of me, beyond me. And this is why the word is used. It's the sense that the most basic thing we do is to breathe. 
And that very act of breathing indicates that we, we are dependent on an intake for the outworking of our lives. And of course, supremely, we are dependent upon the Lord and the power of His Spirit in order to live our lives for His praise and for His glory. And that idea of breathing in, of, of, of need, of craving, of aspiration, almost of gasping, is, I think, particularly appropriate here when the psalmist paints this picture of being like a child before it's been weaned and then a child after it's been weaned, of a child uh, fractious and crying and then a child that is contented. And that picture is all the more vivid because in the ancient Near East, uh, do you remember incidentally when you were weaned? Uh, I, I have no memory of being weaned. Now, why do I have no memory? You know, because my mother was hammering me on the head and there's a kind of forgetfulness. No, because it, it happened when I was quite young. But in the ancient Near East, it customarily happened at least around three and sometimes I've read later on, four. So I was driving to church tonight. I suddenly had this picture in my mind, too near the service to ask my daughter's permission to use an illustration, of my daughter's daughter, my granddaughter, who's four, the age that some children were weaned in the ancient Near East, at this, at this kind of chaotic vision of what would happen in the house if our daughter Ruth was weaning her daughter Anna at the age of four. I mean, I had this picture of, of uh, my daughter wrestling on the floor and Anna shouting, give me milk. And Ruth saying, you will not have any more milk as long as I'm your mother. Um, it's, it's, uh... So this is not a picture. This is not a picture in which we are to imagine everything is, is quiet and everything is calm. That's where the psalmist gets, but it's not where the psalmist begins. This is, a, this is a psalmist who actually remembers being weaned, and everybody who would be singing this psalm would remember the events surrounding being weaned. And so, this is a very dramatic, actually fairly unique picture that we're given in the Old Testament Scriptures of a kind of cataclysmic event that's taking place. And uh, in many ways, as I say, it is the shalom, the calm. It is the entering into the benediction that we've seen undergirds all of these psalms when the Lord's shalom is pronounced upon the child of God and the child of God is brought to a place in which he or she has surrendered to the Lord and is resting in and trusting in the wisdom of the Lord. And so there are two things essentially for us 
to notice. And in some ways, this psalm is best entered by thinking about the situation of the psalmist prior to the weaning. And that's described in verse 2, which gives us these hints of the struggle that preceded the surrender. I have stilled and quieted my soul. And that's why, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Very important for us to notice the activity of the psalmist in this. There has sometimes been in uh, Christian teaching the notion that uh, what surrender means is that you become wholly inactive. But actually, when God works within our lives, He really means to change how we are and what we do. Remember how Paul puts it, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. We are to work out our salvation. It's a gift. We are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because God is at work within us to will and to do of His good pleasure. And this is always the mystery of God's working. God's working does not destroy my working, but God works in me so that I may work in accordance with God's desire and purposes. And so you see that there there has been activity on the part of the psalmist. He says, I have stilled and I have quieted my soul. There is a struggle, and in this struggle, the psalmist wants to be on the Lord's side, subduing his willfulness, subduing her fractiousness by bringing to bear upon their souls the power of God and the grace of God and the wisdom of God. And of course, it's the same in the New Testament, isn't it? Remember how in Hebrews chapter 4, when the author is speaking about what it means to enjoy the rest of God, to rest in God, the author of Hebrews says, so strive to enter into the rest. And this is what's happening here in the psalmist. There is a struggle in which he is actively engaged to give his whole being over to the Lord and to the Lord's purposes and to the Lord's plan. And, uh, and you can see two things happening. You can see on the one hand, like the child who wants milk and not solids, who, uh, to put it in other New Testament terms, doesn't want to go through the pain and the challenge of growing up to spiritual maturity, is happy as a baby. And babies are beautiful and all the rest of it, but they're not beautiful if they behave like babies when they're 18 years old, if they, if they still want to play with the same things instead of leaving those things behind and pressing onwards to the things that lie ahead, leaving behind the diet of milk and entering into the strength 
and the maturity that comes from a a diet of solids. And you often see that in the Christian church, don't you? Um, Actually, I believe that we see this more and more in the Christian church. Very interesting book uh, written by an academic sociologist a few years ago in the United States entitled The Juvenilization of the American Church. And he's commenting on the fact that in so many churches now, what is sung is the kind of thing that children used to sing and teenagers used to sing 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And uh, the thesis of the book is these people have now grown into their 40s and 50s, and they're in positions of influence and power in churches, and what they want to do is to behave like teenagers and sing the kind of thing that you would teach a youngster and not have too much heavy teaching. And to pick up on what David says, you know, let's just do church once on Sunday. And if we have a great band or a 150-member choir or a fabulous organist or terrific performances, then that's what we, that's what we really want. But if you try and, uh, if you try and give us solid food, serious Christianity, then we will accuse you of force-feeding us because we want to stay as baby Christians. It's the very thing that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is concerned about. But this time, you ought to be able to teach people the whole gospel, he says. But actually, I need to give you the baby's bottle because you're not able to take solid food, which is for the mature. And so this battle goes on in in all different kinds of ways. And it's really dramatically expressed here. Um, But it's applicable. Uh, It's it's applicable in a church too where the sermons are however long they are. And when there's more than one of them on the Lord's Day. That in so many areas of our lives, it's, it's possible for us actually to be struggling as immature children saying, I'm comfortable with what I want, and what God wants, it's going to give me pain to make that transition. I'm going to have to surrender to Him. There's a beautiful illustration of this uh, in the life of Jacob, isn't there? You know, Jacob, who was, who was a very unweaned child, very headstrong, very, uh, very self-willed, uh, conniving right from the very beginning. And you remember eventually when uh, God meets with him at the, the Wadi Jabbok and, and the angel of the Lord wrestles him do you, remember, do you remember how willful he is? I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, there's something beautiful about that, but there's also something terrible about that. Here you are wrestling with the mighty angel of God, and you're saying to him, I'm going to win this. 
So you'd better bless me. Wonderful that he wanted the divine blessing. But not so wonderful that he thought that he could obtain the divine blessing just by holding on to the angel. And do you remember how he does obtain the divine blessing? He obtains the divine blessing when he loses the wrestling match. That's how it happens. And if you had seen Jacob at any point thereafter, he was far from perfect thereafter, incidentally. But if you'd seen him at any point later on, you would have noticed that he was limping. It was the limp of the subdued victor. Because to win in this conflict, you actually have to lose. And that's the way to victory. You have to yield to the purposes, the gracious purposes. You know, sometimes you have to preach on things you know nothing about. I have not weaned a single child or grandchild in my life. But you don't need to do it to see the picture. And, and it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to move from the picture to the areas in your own life where there is this uh, stubborn resistance until instead of saying to the Lord, we'll do it my way according to my will. And actually, didn't you know I know best? When we come to him with empty hands. Remember how Ecclesiastes puts it? Better a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And sometimes, sometimes it comes almost uh, reluctantly. All right, Lord, I give in. And in a congregation of living Christians, there are always some of us who are, who are just at that place where we're being fractious and we're, you know, we're pulling, we're pulling for the milk bottle. And he wants to stretch us to grow. And we only win when we lose. We only gain the victory when we surrender to the Lord. And for some of us, that's how it began, isn't it? That was what our conversion to Christ was like. Um, we struggled, we fought. We, we believed as, as far as we could see that we did actually know better than the God of the Bible. And so we struggled until we were wonderfully subdued. And then nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross, we cling, and uh, life becomes new. Except there's this cycle built into these Psalms that teaches us that when we get to the end of one of the cycles, we're really just ready to go into the next cycle. And so this is a pattern that goes on until glory. Because it's only, it's only when we are divested of all the junk in our lives that we begin to realize how much junk there is underneath the junk. It's like weeding the garden, or it's like weeding my garden. We, we move into this house, and there's a, there's a garden, 
And I see some dandelions growing. So I think I'll start digging out these dandelions. I'm still digging out dandelions. You know, I know, I know, I know I should have got some of the stuff and put it over, but it's been an interesting experience. You know, if you're one of those housewives that looks for the speck of dust, it's never-ending, is it? You know, you can't, you can't clean the house once and say, done and dusted. Do you think God can clean your house once and sit back and say, well, don't need to do any more there? No, he's going round and round and round. Because, uh, like your mum, he is wiser, and he is bigger than you are. And he is absolutely determined to give you his best. That's the point. So, there is the struggle that precedes the surrender. And then what he actually describes in verse 1 is, this is, this is where God brought me. Verse 2 is, let me just give you a hint of what was involved, the struggle involved in getting there. But in verse 1, he's actually describing the transformation that followed this surrender. And he, he does this beautifully as well. He does it in a kind of anatomical way. My heart, he says, is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. And I do not concern myself is really a paraphrase of the idea of walking. So he's speaking about his heart, he's speaking about his eyes, he's, he's speaking about the way in which he characteristically walks and what's happened to him. Well, uh, God has brought into his life, first of all, a new humility, hasn't he? My heart is not proud. Uh, in other words, he doesn't look down on others. He's not, he's not exalted. He, he no longer wants in relationship to God to be the person who is in control. Uh, that, that twistedness in Jacob uh, was passed down into the family, wasn't it? It was there in Joseph. First time we meet him, at least first time we learn something about him in Genesis 37, comes down to breakfast. Uh, other brothers are having their conflicts. Um, he's probably having frosties since he's the favored son. And uh, as they're digging into their conflicts, uh, he's hardly at the table. He says, by the way, I had this amazing dream about myself and about you last night. And uh, I, I mean, the, 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 the dream was so vivid and the message so obvious and uh, the message is, you're all, one day you're all going to come and you're going to bow down before me. I mean, the sheer arrogance, I mean, apart from the lack of wisdom in it, the arrogance of it is breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is so immature. Even for a 17-year-old, it's incredibly immature. And it's so proud. And then you come to the end of the saga in Genesis 50. 
and for all the ways in which his unwisdom and his pride was the catalyst of his downfall. He's a beautiful expression of, my heart is not proud, O Lord. When he he says to his brothers, you remember, I know you meant it for evil to harm me. But the big thing is God meant it for good. And it's going to lead to the salvation of many. And it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of real humility. And notice this is true of all that he says here. Uh, it isn't because he has worked up humility. I mean, humility, how do you, you know, you say to somebody, say to your children, now you need to be humble. You know, and, you know, they know they're on a hiding to nothing if they say to you, tell me how to be humble. Well, how do you become humble? Uh, you, you don't, you know, you sit in a darkened room and say, I must be humble. Or look in a mirror and say, be humble. No, this is, this is Thomas Chammer's great principle, isn't it, of the expulsive power of a new affection. You only become humble when you know that there is something to be humble about. And the easiest way to learn there is something to be humble about is not by clenching your fist and saying three times to yourself every three hours in the day, I will be humble today. It's by recognizing the, the greatness, the bigness, the majesty of God, that His wisdom is superior to yours. His experience is superior. You sometimes catch yourself thinking about God or speaking to God as though He'd never met anybody like you before. And one of the things you dis- I'm sure you discover this in ordinary life, but I've rarely lived in ordinary life. I've kind of lived among people who think they're ordinary in theological seminaries, but they only think they're ordinary because they are idiosyncratically like each other or been a minister in a church. And uh, it's amazing what we tell people without saying it, isn't it? And, and this is a wonderful illustration of that, that, that everything about me tells whether I think I'm bigger than God or He's bigger than me. And, and you want to cover your face in shame at the fact that, that you've so often lived, even as a Christian, as though God had never met anybody quite like you. I mean, I've sometimes had experiences in Christian ministry where somebody has come to intimidate me about something or to make sure I do this. And you know, you say all the right things and you do all the right things. But when they leave, you think, I've met you about 15 times before in other guises, in other churches. You don't fool me. And yet, then I turn upon myself and I think, I'm living as though I could fool God, as though, he'd never, as though he'd never had to deal with somebody just like me, as though he had just a little bit more experience than I have. And so what brings the humility is the expulsive power of this new sense of the sheer greatness of God before whom we become humble and through whose wisdom we learn also to be humble 
before others. So his heart is not proud and his eyes are not haughty. Now, what's this picture presenting? Well, it's presenting the, the picture of somebody who, uh, whose eye is focused on, on a great ambition. Uh, and, and it's got to do with, so what, what dominates my thinking? And here again, the same principle is at work, isn't it? Um, I mean, what, what, is, what has he set his eye on? He set his eye on, on his own glory. Now, you might not use the word glory about it, but, you know, that's what, that's what we do, isn't it? We, we set our gaze on the things that will make us look good, look rich, look influential, be looked at and admired. So what's going to deliver us from that? Well, of course, it's, it's looking higher, isn't it? It's when our eyes are raised to the glory of God and that's the focus of our attention. That's, uh, that's what we love. But the haughtiness in our eyes begins to go. I mean, at first sight you would think, if, you're, if your eyes are raised up high and are haughty, the remedy for that is to get your eyes down low. And there is a kind of pseudo-humility that does that, isn't there? I mean, it was actually, it was projected in the Middle Ages. This, you know, I keep my eyes down because I'm humble and I'm, I'm not proud, and you could have a stinkingly proud heart. No, actually, the remedy here is to, to lift your, your eyes up higher. Um, you know, you're only looking at the horizon. You need to look at the Lord. And to see his glory. And it's when you, when you see his glory and its, and its beauty. And the way in which it is expressed in all of his amazing attributes. That of course the haughtiness goes out of your own eye. It goes out of your own aspiration. You, you've something far more important to set your heart on than your own glory. I wonder if you know the story that B.B. Warfield, very famous American theologian of a hundred and however many years ago, tells in a, in a little, basically, one-page essay he wrote entitled, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? And he tells this story very probably about his brother that uh, at a time of, of tremendous unrest, uh, there, was a, there was a military officer walking down a street in a, in a Midwestern town. That's uh, not Sterling, that's Midwestern United States. And uh, I mean, there's just chaos all around him. But the man had presence. And apparently as he walked down the street, just his bearing, his, the poise in the midst of this chaos, people actually stopping and, and turning around and looking at him. And uh, this man, this other man, probably 
somebody Warfield knew is walking down the street, and, and he feels the same thing as he, as he comes near to this man. There, there's just something about him. And as the man passes him by, you know, he's trying to do what his mother told him he was to do. You don't stare at strangers, but he, he just can't help himself. He turns around and he, he's about to stare at this man. He's so impressed. And he discovers the man has turned around. He's walking straight up towards him and he's got his finger out and he taps him on the chest and he says, what is the chief end of man? Which if you're not a Presbyterian is the first question of the Westminster Assembly Shorter Catechism. And Warfield's friend responds. Boy, I'm glad you asked that question. No, he responds. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the military man says this to him. I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Not that he had learned the words, but the words had permeated into his life. And Warfield's friend or brother says to him in return, do you know, strangely enough, that's exactly what I was thinking about you. Now, we, you know, Christians smell. You know we smell, don't you? We have an aroma. And that's New Testament language. We, there is an aroma Remember, as a teenager reading Japanese, people think Scottish people smell of milk. Hey, if you'd been a Scottish boy consuming these gallons of milk in the post-war period because we'd all been deprived and our bones were falling off, uh, you probably would smell of milk. But Japanese people apparently didn't drink milk. And so when they met Scottish people, they And you know that's true of other cultures, isn't it? You know, you're looking for a new house, and you're in a city, and you go into a house, and you know the ethnicity of the people who used to live in the house. People who smoke. I mean, we're much more sensitive to this now. It's, it's in their clothes. People who belong to the Lord, whose gaze is towards the glory of the Lord, that's what he's speaking about. He's speaking about the, the new poise that comes when you're taken up with His glory. And when the question you're always asking, it's a really great question to ask. How can I best glorify God according to His Word in this situation? That cuts through so much of the rubble. And it, it does something to your life. Of course you don't notice it, but others notice it. The new grace, the new contentment, the new surrender. When you know however sore it is, you've surrendered to the Lord, and you know that His wisdom is better than your wisdom. And then he adds this, I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I think this probably means I haven't set my affections on getting bigger things than I've got just now. 
and I'm content to rest in God, even when I can't understand what he's doing in my life. And therein lies this sense of shalom, of contentment. I mean, you know what it's like when you're, the things that happen and and you're, you're wrestling with God, and you're saying to God, I want my milk back because I can't understand what you're doing, and I want to understand, and I need to understand. And he says, no, what you need is to trust me. I know what I'm doing. If I were to tell you what I'm doing, I'd blow the electricity in your brain. Trust me. And when you've exhausted yourself, as it were, wrestling with him, trying to work it out, why is this happening? Where is this going? What is God doing? And you're brought to this point, that he himself is more important than what he plans to do. And the really significant thing is, whatever he plans to do, I want to be like a weaned child cozying up to him and resting in him. And when that's true, something else happens, and it's here in verse 3. Everything in verses 1 and 2 is about the self and God but now the self, is, the self is forgotten. There is a kind of blessed release of self-forgetfulness. And he's turning to others and he's saying, Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Do you know that hymn of Anna Laetitia Waring uh, when she sings about the Father having portioned out our lives for us. And when she speaks about coming to trust Him, she learns what it means, she says, to have a heart at leisure from itself, to soothe and sympathize. So long as I'm consumed with telling God, I want milk and not solids, and I'm unsurrendered to Him in areas of my life, of course everything closes in upon me, my situation, my difficulties, my struggles, what I want, what He wants, what's going to happen. But then when my soul is as a weaned child, this blessed release of self forgetfulness, detachment from obsession with myself begins to percolate through my being, and I have a heart at leisure from itself to minister to others. Um, That's Jesus, isn't it? Actually, Jesus did once wrestle profoundly with the Father's will. There is great mystery here, and and we need to say it carefully. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, for all practical purposes, 
the Lord Jesus said to his father, everything in me does not desire this crucifixion. Everything in me draws back from even momentarily sensing that I am not under your shalom, and you're no longer saying to me, the Lord bless you and keep you, and your face is no longer shining. Everything in me says no to that. So, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because, of course, the perfectly holy one could never have desired that sense of alienation from God. It's very different from our struggle, but it, it's, a, it's a struggle that leads to surrender. Ah, Father, your, your wisdom, yes, this alienation is necessary for their salvation. And you notice something very interesting in the Gospels, and it's actually in all of the Gospels in different ways. In all of the Gospels, there is reference to Jesus' soul being in a state of distress. And then the moment he says to the Father, Father, this is your will, and your will I intend to obey. From that point onwards, there is the most extraordinary poise and calm and sense of assurance and glorious resolution to glorify the Father. And it's actually quite breathtaking that when Jesus has, as it were, rested in his Father's arms and said, Everything, everything in my holy humanity recoils at the thought of not seeing your face. But Father, if even that is your will, then your will be done. And from that point onwards, he moves. It's very interesting. He moves to the cross as somebody who seems to be in complete majestic control of everything that happens, even to the point where we're told in the Gospels, he chooses the moment when he will bow his head and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, listen to him when he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden because you cannot win the battle against the Lord. Come to me. Take my yoke on you. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Does this picture kind of put a you know, a physician's hands on something in your life. You know how they do it. Presumably they teach you to do this in medical school. 
you know where the pain is, but you, you don't go for the pain. You know, you start at the shoulder. Does it hurt here? No, I'm fine here. Was no, no, I'm fine. And especially if you're a man, you become increasingly relieved. There's actually nothing wrong with you. And then he kind of slowly works down. He's like, And maybe this is the big issue in your life. That for all your Christs, there is there's some area where you're not surrendering to him. And there can never be shalom until there is surrender. So surrender. Lay down your arms and surrender and find peace. Heavenly Father, thank you for these word pictures that you give to us in Scripture, and especially for the way in which we see those word pictures so beautifully expressed and described and illustrated in men and women in Scripture, and especially for the way in which the Lord Jesus would surely have been able to say to you, Father, my soul is as a weaned child within me. We pray for that Christ-like surrender to your perfect will. We know with him the problem was not the problem of sin, but we know with us that the problem is our sin. And so we pray that you would deal with it and that you would set us free. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.